there's no medication that I can prescribe to change the outcome for that young person. What medical power do I have to stop a bullet, right, from hitting the chest of one of the young people? But what I can do as a medical provider is provide enrichment opportunities and bring collaborators and other stakeholders on board to work with me to change health outcomes and academic outcomes for the kids we do. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine. We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Nicole. How are you doing today? Hey, Shiva. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, too. I think we were both talking a little bit about some of the stresses and fatigues that are going on in our lives lately, but also how excited we are about the chance to visit with our guests when we do our podcast together. And I'm really excited. I think that's energizing me. And in particular, we've both been very excited about our special guest today and the theme we're going to talk about. So I'm I'm a little bit high on life right now. <laughs> I love it. I need to steal some of that energy. I'm feeling a little depleted. I've been uh, bouncing between different circadian rhythms the last few weeks. So happy to be back on days and excited to be with you guys today. We are going to be talking about one of my passion projects and personal passions in medicine, which is pipeline programs. We're going to be interviewing a leader in creating programs that encourage and facilitate underrepresented minority students to begin to think about a career in medicine. Diversity is such an important topic and an asset in medicine, and I believe that patients receive better care when they are taken care of by people who look like them in a diverse healthcare workforce. I totally agree, Nicole. This is such an important topic. There's some data that I think we should share. According to the AAMC, the term underrepresented minority, the term underrepresented includes students who identify as Black, Mexican American, Native American, including American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians, and mainland Puerto Ricans. And in 2019, of the students who graduated from U.S. medical school, this data is pretty remarkable. Only 0.2% identified as American Indian or Alaska Native, 0.2%, and 0.1% identified as Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, 7.1% identified as Black or African American, and 6.2% identified as Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish descent. There is a serious underrepresentation of minority groups in medicine, and not having representation is a problem because it not only limits the potential of providing culturally competent care from people who know from the same culture, but it also perpetuates health inequities among marginalized communities. And there are many factors that might contribute to this persistent shortage. One key factor is the lack of access to quality education and mentorship, opportunities that come from mentorship for minority students interested in pursuing healthcare careers are limited. 
And Nicole, you helped start a DEI pipeline program at UCSF for medical students to start thinking about a career in emergency medicine. I'm really interested in your sharing that. Could you tell us a little bit about that program? Yes, Shiva, thank you so much. I actually was just on a call planning next year's URM Summer Fellowship. So very excited about this ongoing program. And I really appreciate those statistics. And I'll be sharing a little bit later on those statistics when looking at emergency medicine physicians are just as horrendous. So really diversity is needed all around. And I'm lucky enough to be working alongside a group of incredible emergency medicine physicians who helped create an annual summer fellowship for first year URM medical students from around the country. This fellowship exposes students to different topics in emergency medicine, partners students with a research mentor and a project, and creates hands-on learning opportunities in ultrasound, procedures, and pairs students up with URM faculty as career mentors, which I think is huge. And according to an article written in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine by one of my personal mentors, Dr. Star Knight, who was one of our podcast guests, in 2019, practicing emergency medicine doctors that were made up of individuals that identified as Black were only 5%. Those who identified as Hispanic made up 5.8%. And those who identified as American Indians made up only 0.3% of the emergency medicine physician workforce. I really appreciate the work that you're doing, Nicole, in starting up such a project that's so meaningful and we need more. And this is why we're going to talk to our amazing guests today and learn some things and, and hopefully be inspired. And I hope our listeners are to maybe start projects themselves. So I'm excited. I'm going to introduce our amazing guest today, Dr. Tomas Magania, who co-founded another pipeline program, which is quite impressive. It's called FACES, F-A-C-E-S, for the Future Coalition. Faces for the Future Coalition. This is a youth-focused organization based in Oakland, California, and it's dedicated to transforming health by inspiring young individuals from diverse backgrounds to pursue healthcare careers. This organization's mission involves really innovative approaches to youth development, to health career preparation, and their own sense of wellness in life and in school and in education and their futures. The organization provides programs throughout the year to equip disadvantaged youth with knowledge and skills and confidence for college and for the health professions. Dr. Tomas Magania is a board-certified pediatrician. He is a graduate of UCSF Medical School, we learned as well, with expertise in the care of vulnerable children and adolescents, including those impacted by the juvenile justice and foster care systems, as well as immigration and community violence. He is a lead physician in the Department of School-Based Health Centers at La Clinica de la Raza, where he serves the complex medical needs of diverse youth from Alameda County. And Dr. Magania also serves as the director of the UCSF Latinx Center for Excellence's Aspiring Physicians Program at San Francisco State University, where he supports the development and mentorship of Latinx and African-American undergrads who aspire to become physicians. We are so excited to have you on as our guest today, Dr. Magania. Welcome to our Meaningful Medicine podcast. Thank you both. That was such a lovely and warm welcome and introduction. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are so excited to have you on. We like to begin each episode by asking our guests to, in short, share with us a particularly meaningful or defining experience from some time early on in your training, your life, or your career. 
that's such a profound question. And when I was reflecting on that, you know, life is so complex and rich. And there's so many moments in our narratives that kind of impact us in different ways. It's hard to identify one particular moment that resonates most meaningful because I feel for somebody like me and where I came from, there were multiple points of contact with adults who came into my life at very momentous times and expressed a belief in me and attention to me that there was something that was unique and worth investing in. You know, where I grew up and how I grew up, I did not have many role models. I'm the first generation to go to college. Those of us who are first generation have to figure out and navigate these educational journeys by ourselves, right? And it's often frequent that we internalize many kind of the negatives that we hear about folks who come from our communities. And I think those moments where certain adults came into my life and saw me for who I was and my potential shifted that narrative for me and allowed me to kind of believe in myself and the potential. So there was a series of those moments, you know, particularly in my childhood and in my adolescence and young adulthood, where those people came into my life and really kind of set the foundation for my passion about mentorship and my passion to inform and and support others. With regard to the decision to ultimately become an adolescent provider and and a pediatrician, there was one particular moment that really resonates for me, and I, and I would love to share it with you. And this is when I was a third-year medical student at UCSF, and I was starting my very first clinical clerkship was pediatrics. And I had actually at that time no intention to enter pediatrics. I was thinking at that time about adult medicine, frankly, because I wasn't sure that I could manage and seeing children suffer. It seemed just a little too delicate for me. But I was, I was excited to start my pediatric rotation just because I wanted to experience what it was like. And the first patient that I was assigned as a medical student on the wards was a teenager, a Latina teenager from the Mission District. And of course, the first words I hear about her was she was a difficult young lady and angry and resistant. So perhaps you as a, as a Latina medical student might be able to connect with her, right? Of course, right? And she had a unique diagnosis. At that time, we used to call it testicular feminization. It's now called androgen insensitivity, where she presented, right, as a female, but genetically she was a male. And she had not yet known about this diagnosis. So we had to disclose this information to her. So can you imagine at that time in her life, in the midst of adolescence, when identity is such a part of that journey, right? And understanding your place in the world, now to have to be told that I'm a gender other than I thought I was, but yet I look this way. And what I found after talking with her and spending time with her was how much I was able to connect with her on a very personal level. She started opening up to me and disclosing things to me that she had not disclosed to others. And I think it was simply because I took the time to listen and to ask questions and to speak from her from a cultural lens that she was familiar with. Shiva, you talk a lot about the importance of kind of cultural concordancy and connection. And 
in this particular case, that was especially true because I was able to kind of connect with her on those similar things that we believed in, in terms of values and the way we grew up and certain foods and all of that stuff. It was, it was a real transformative moment for me because it was just like, wow, I did not think that I could be able to connect with teens and I'm really loving this. I'm digging this. And that really kind of changed my trajectory for me. And it was at that moment where I'm like, I really enjoy this. I like this. And I particularly like the young people who are designated as kind of difficult and resistant because I don't like those terms and I feel they don't do justice to, to these children or to anybody, right, who's kind of lived a particular narrative that's not been understood. That was a real very important moment for me, along with all the others. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Magania, that's a really wonderful story where as a young medical student just beginning your training clinically on the wards, you got to experience how your humanity actually mattered to another person's wellness and healing and process of their journey. And it reminds me of a quote, I don't know who it's attributed to, but the quote says, the bad news is that you're only human, but the good news is that your humanity counts for a lot. And that's really what the essence, the art of being a physician is so much about that, isn't it? About connecting your humanity as well as your knowledge to help yeah, and support. It is at the center of what we do. When we do it correctly, right? It, it is at the center uh, of, of, of what we do as, as healthcare providers and, and to some extent healers, if that's the way we choose to identify ourselves as. Yeah, yeah. that's beautifully said. We love hearing that story, just as the, the early young Dr. Magania, just growing into becoming you. And we did also, we, we love origin stories. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your origins of the program. So we, we gave a little short teaser about the Incredible Faces for the Future program that you co-founded in 2000, I believe, in Oakland. And it, it is and was to improve health outcomes for at-risk adolescents and to respond to the imperatives for building a diverse and culturally responsive healthcare workforce and to address these workforce shortages in healthcare professions. So Dr. McKenna, we'd love for you to tell us more about the Faces for the Future program and tell us more as well about how you got inspired to start it. Thank you, Shiva. I would be happy to share that journey. As with anything, you know, it is, is multifactorial and complex and informed by a lot of different elements, right? And I think the most important part of it was just really being deeply influenced by my own narrative. As I said, of being a first-generation student, Latino, going into medicine and particularly the educational journey and being one of few, right? And having to navigate that and understanding that. And certainly in my medical school class, also being one of the few. You very beautifully highlighted the lack of diversity in medicine. And sadly, in kind of the 20 years plus years that I've been practicing, those numbers really haven't shifted much, although there have been many efforts to change that. So I really understood personally the imperative of needing to build a diverse healthcare workforce that was representative of the communities that we serve that understood the cultural linguistic nuances of, of our communities and so on and so forth, because that's a community I came from, you know, I'm seeing kind of the disparities my own family lived in and not growing up seeing a Latino physician in the entirety of my own life. Right. So all of those things were influencing my own experience with regard to the FACES program. At that time, I was working in the D division of adolescent medicine at Children's Hospital in Oakland because I had a real interest in working with adolescents. And at that time, 
the teen clinic was really serving those young people that were coming from the east and west Oakland corridors. So these are populations and zip codes that really are impacted by some of the worst healthcare disparities and some of the worst social determinants of health, right? Large community violence, poverty, family dysfunction, poor performance schools and so forth. So we were dealing with a very vulnerable population of young people, but an extraordinary at promise group of young people because they exemplified profound resiliency and strength and resourcefulness by simply living where they did live, right? And that certainly resonated with my own personal experience as well too. faces evolved was simply us listening to what young people were asking for, what they wanted. So part of what we do in adolescent medicine, right, when we work with young people is we ask them about their lives because we want to know what is going on that may be impacting either positively or negatively their well-being. The other part of that is we know the data shows that the three leading causes of death right? Morbidity and mortality among young people, adolescents in this country are trauma, homicide, and suicide. That is the three leading causes of death of young people in this country, all three profoundly preventable, all three public health issues, all three topics which were never covered in one medical textbook that I opened. So here I am working with a population that is dying from factors that are not necessarily related to physiological pathology, but rather to societal pathology and to our lack of investment in young people and our lack of investment in public education and frankly, children not being a national priority for us, you know, as a society and as a community. So and the injustice of that was just too much to bear. What we do in adolescent medicine is we do our assessments and we ask them questions about their lives. And one of those questions we always ask is, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your future plans? And the sad reality is for the, the many of young people that we were with, we're not able to articulate a career or notion or a sense of future because so many of their friends and their family members never made it past a certain age. So this notion of a long-term future wasn't even in their reality. So we know that if a young person was able to articulate just a career plan, even a notion idea, right, that was a resiliency factor and we could work with that. And what we were finding was is that a lot of young people who were in our clinics were expressing an interest in health. It was the one thing that they all knew because at some point they or their family members had interfaced with the healthcare systems. And I dare say that for many, if not most of them, it was an experience that was not a pleasant one. They or their family members had interfaced with the healthcare system that they felt had disrespected them or ignored them or treated them poorly. And they thought that they could do better and they wanted to be able to serve their community in that capacity in some way. So there were young people who wanted to go into healthcare but really had no means to explore or to understand what it was. So we listened. Our response was to listen to them, right? And say, well, if we're going to live up to our mission as a hospital, By attending to the wellness of children in our community, that means we got to step it up beyond the clinic, right? And utilize our institution as a resource for young people to learn. And that's how the programs ultimately started. 
The other parts of it, right, that were informing this imperative was is that our own workforce didn't reflect the diversity of the communities we were serving. So we had to do our due diligence to try to improve the workforce numbers by investing in young people down the pipeline, right, and live up to our mission. And frankly, in my role as a physician there, I, I held our institution to that and really kind of called the champions to arms, so to say, and said, let's collaborate and create something unique for, our, for the children in our communities. And that's, in a nutshell, how FACES was created. Wow. What an incredibly inspiring story. It sounds like you really saw a gap in your community and really thought about creative ways to fill that gap and give people the resources that they were so wanting and give them really the inspiration to start thinking about and planning for the future. It's, it's amazing work. As founding director of Faces for the Future, you've created opportunities for underserved youth to explore health careers, as we discussed, through year-round and summer programming. Can you describe and share some of the details about how these programs operate and how they've evolved and expanded over the years? Like, what are some of those key milestones that your program has experienced over the years? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. And that's an important one. You know, when the idea came up to launch the FACES, and as a reminder, the program was founded by two pediatricians. So our intention was always that this was going to be based upon tenets of wellness. And really, if we're going to provide young people with opportunities for career exposure, that we wanted to ensure that they had the wraparound services and the support and the interventions that would optimize their success, both in school as well as in the program. Historically, back in those days, the kind of school to career pipeline that was prevalent in California was really by design excluding young people from particular zip codes or be because of criteria that excluded our young people, whether they be certain GPA requirements and so forth. So those young people we desperately needed in healthcare were by design being excluded from some of these school to career pathway programs. So we made it very clear that we wanted to design a program that reduced those barriers to participation. And inherent as that was there was no GPA requirement, that if a young person even just exhibited the desire to apply, that was enough of potential, right, and motivation for us to take consideration. Well, we spent about a year working with teachers in our community to say, what would be the ideal model for design? Let's be a responsive program rather than one we think is the best, right? And so we met with academic partners and we said, look, we are a healthcare agency that wants to provide a service. What is it that you need that we can provide? And that's how we came up with the four tenets and the four basic principles and pillars of a FACES program. So the four pillars which comprise every single one of our programs are the following. Number one is health careers exposure and training, and that comes in different formats, but is really centered on work-based learning experiences, exposing young people to the diversity of careers in healthcare, right? Those which are entry-level employment, because many of our young people simply just need a job. And this notion of medical school or nursing programs might be an aspiration, but the reality is they may not be in a place to really kind of pursue that. So where can we welcome them into the workforce? at very early levels, right? And so we wanted to engage those, those departments and those part, um, supervisors in. The second part of it was around academic enrichment. That's our second pillar. The notion being, because we don't have a GPA requirement, right? 
if a young person is struggling academically, we want to be able to provide them with the services so that they can really uh, optimize their success. The third piece was wellness. And that was critically important because ultimately FACES is a youth health program from my perspective as a provider. Many of the young people we were working with were not doing well in school, not because of lack of motivation, certainly not because of lack of intelligence, but rather because there were issues going on in their lives that were distracting or preventing them from being able to focus, to attend to school, whatever it may be. These may be social determinants, right? An example would be some of our young people lacked health insurance, and so they weren't able to access their asthma medications. So when their asthma came up, right, they didn't have their meds, they didn't have insurance, they didn't have a primary care provider, they would miss days and days and days of school. Or another issue might be that they were interpreting for their families, so they had to go and miss school, right, to do those elements. So once you understood what was going on in a young person's life, you can address those issues, right? Youth-centered intervention. And then the last piece is really about youth development and youth advocacy, training young people to understand their voice and agency in healthcare. So whether or not they choose to ultimately pursue a career in health, the fact that they are able to understand how to navigate it for themselves and for their families gives them some sense of power and ability to hopefully uh, change decision-making around how they interface with it. So those are how we try to orient services for every single one of our programs. What I've always felt is that FACES, for me, because it is centered in wellness and health, was really an extension of what I do in a clinic. If I know that the young people I work with are dying from those three causes that I told you about, there's no medication that I can prescribe to change the outcome for that young person. What medical power do I have to stop a bullet, right, from hitting the chest of one of the young people? But what I can do as a medical provider is provide enrichment opportunities and bring collaborators and other stakeholders on board to work with me to change health outcomes and academic outcomes for the kids we do. So it really is an extension of what I do in terms of my practice. That's what FACES is ultimately for me. To address your questions in terms of outcomes, we measure our outcomes based upon some of the typical metrics with regard to GPAs and graduation rates. And 100% of FACES students graduate from high school. And this is in some areas where there perhaps may be 40 to 60% graduation rates for seniors in some of our schools. We measure, you know, kind of post-secondary planning. So over 90% of our graduates are able to enter some sort of post-secondary program, whether it be college, employment, or certification programs, over 90% of our kids. And over 90% of our kids express an intention to pursue health careers. But most importantly, 100% of our children stay alive. And that's not the usual statistic for many of the young people in these communities where these young people reside. So that's, for me, the most important one. I think Nicole and I are very moved by everything you shared and the foundational part of listen to your patient. Listen, ask a question, but listen for the answer. So much in medicine, we ask a question and then we ask another one right after that because we're trying to get to the diagnosis we think we're going to get to. But ask and then be quiet and listen to the answer and they will tell you, every person will tell you what they need if you actually listen. 
Absolutely. You know, uh, that is so such an important aspect of what we do as medical providers is the, the ability to listen, right? What is the first element, right? The most important part of our assessment is the history. We were trained that as medical students, right, and as residents, and yet in in the reality of practice, that history has re been reduced so little because our abilities to listen attentively is is distracted by kind of the stresses and the realities of having to get through such a busy day. But I mean, I think the notion of listening is even more important for young people, particularly those in our communities who do not feel that they have any sense of presence or agency in a society where they are marginalized and frankly, and just by default, discarded. I use these words intentionally because these are the terms that young people have told me. I think, yes, the first part of our development was listening attentively to what young people were asking for. The second, I think the most important part of it is the response, walking the talk. That's ultimately what is the most important thing is walking the talk because we can say a lot. Oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah, we should be doing that. Yeah, mentorship is important. But when you actually create and fulfill that, right, and actually the young people see that, oh, man, you did hear what I said. There's profound impact. And that's, again, what I think a lot of young people have told me anecdotally over the years you know, is just how much they felt that they had been actually paid attention to. There's tremendous power in that. Tremendous. That's the power. That is it. That's so wonderful as a recipe, you know, as a recipe for the future, for anyone who's wanting to start a program, ask and listen, and then walk the walk, the talk or walk the walk. Exactly. That's so beautiful. On that subject of listening, this is maybe switching a little bit, but there's something called code switching that I wasn't that familiar with, but I, I understood. And I think we found it in your website as well. Could you talk to us a little bit and expand on the idea of, first of all, what is code switching and how do you use it and how does it impact the students that you work with? You know, it's really interesting because I learned about the term code switching much later in my life and then realized that it, it's something that I had been doing naturally <laughs> you know, my entire existence, you know, to realize that I had been doing code switching was quite a revelation to me because it just made so much sense and really kind of articulated the experience of almost everybody I've known within my family and within my circle of those who are first generation. So code switching is really that notion that people who come from particular communities, when they are within their own particular kind of cultural community, whether it be their family, friends, their neighborhood, they can, can communicate and conduct themselves and use language, right? That is the norm, whether it be a particular vernacular or idioms or a way of speaking, right, or something like that, that is familiar to us in the way that we grew up, but is not really part kind of, of the mainstream educational professional world. And so we know that when we enter those educational organizations, right? When the culture is different from that which we grow up, we have to shift the way we talk. We have to shift the way that we behave. We have to shift the way that we interact. Our responses are differently and we just kind of adapt, right? It's it's like a type of acculturation of sorts, right? Where we have to really learn at certain times a completely new vocabulary. And that's true for us of when we go into medicine, right? We do learn 
to have to code switch a bit when we're on the wards because now we communicate with our colleagues using certain terms and approaches and so on and so forth. But for folks of color in particular, BIPOC folks in general, that is our lived journey on a regular basis, particularly when you're entering a professional world that is made up of folks who really aren't from your own community. And so that's what we know that we have to do, certainly in our professional worlds, those of us who come from diverse communities. Our children also have to do that as well, right? And particularly our faces, young people, because when we are bringing them from their schools and their neighborhoods into the hospital environment and teaching them about professionalism and teaching them all of those soft skills, which are important, right, that we are judged by, right, by employers or those who are evaluating us for entry into certain programs, these are skill sets that they have to learn. And it helps to put a name to it because then young people have something to call it and know what they are doing. The problem where it comes in, you know, and I have to be honest with this, is that we learn to adapt when we are in those professional worlds. And then sometimes when we return to our own communities, we are sometimes perhaps criticized as being assimilated for lack of a better word, whitewashed, you know, those type of derogatory terms that we've come. And sometimes, you know, uh, family members who say, well, you know, you're educated, you're better than us type of thing. And so that's the other kind of downside of this notion of walking between two worlds is sometimes you feel like you're not accepted in either uh, by the nature of having to learn how to adapt. But it is, it is in some ways by instinct a survival mechanism because we have to get through it and we have to get by and we have to be accepted. And in other ways, it's a profound skill set to have. Feels a little bit like being a shapeshifter. But I think, you know, code switching is very much part of our reality and those and those of the young people we have. And and you know, for, for faces young people, we really very strongly identify that as a skill set, as a very powerful skill set that will help them to succeed. But we want it, we want to make it clear that while they are able to do this, right, their identities at home and who they are are not less than in any way. And in fact, it is those identities, right, those that they grew up with, those narratives that in fact will be the strongest trait, the strongest skill set when they are interfacing with patients from their own community. Those are those points of connection. As it was for me when I worked with that 16-year-old young young lady when I was a third year medical student. I was not needing to code switch when I was working with her. I was being myself and where I grew up. And that's where she connected. If I had stayed as kind of the white coated medical student in my interactions with that young lady, then I would have gotten the same attitude that she was giving to everybody else on that floor. So it was my ability to shift back into kind of my authentic self per se that allowed me to connect with her. And that's where our young people can shine and why, frankly, they are so needed in healthcare. I love that. I love the idea of being that chameleon and having that ability to code switch and having that natural ability. I think one of the most stressful aspects of medical school, especially third year, is 
as that third year medical student, you're constantly being thrown into new environments. You're constantly having to shape shift and kind of figure out the culture, figure out the relationships, be that professional, but also be in that learning environment. And it, I think it is so stressful. And to have, you know, something to fall back on and have that skill set, I think is so powerful. Kind of moving on to a different kind of skill set that I think is just as important, resiliency is a critical aspect of overcoming challenges. Can you share some examples of how resiliency comes into play amongst the youth and youth professionals that you work with? Of course, you know, real resiliency, I think, really is exemplified by every young person in our program, just by the nature of who they are, where they grow up, and how they grow up. You know, we we did an assessment several years ago of just one cohort of our young people. This was our young people in our Hayward program, because we actually have programs throughout California and program in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and in Denver, Colorado, and soon to be a program in Eugene, Colorado. So we do have a national footprint right now. When we assess what our young people were experiencing, over 90% of them said that they had been some way impacted by violence in their communities. I think it was over 60% of them said that they themselves had in some way been impacted by abuse of some nature. So we're dealing, you know, we work with a population of young people who have been significantly impacted by some level of trauma. Resiliency is really the ability, as you said, to rebound from that and not just rebound, but really thrive kind of in the face and the setting of such significant and complex trauma. And our young people exemplify that simply by the fact that they are able to get through the day, right, and still consider the possibility of a future and still be willing to to accept assistance and support from those adults who care enough to want to be part of their lives, right? One of the first thing that happens when somebody is traumatized, right, is the dis- disintegration of trust. It's really hard to trust somebody when you've been really handed pretty significant bad hands throughout the course of your childhood. And yet young people still find the ability to say, okay, I'm willing to allow this adult to come into my life and support me and even more believe in me, even though I may not necessarily, I believe in myself. So there are these kind of sacred, beautiful examples of resiliency that happen all the time with our kids. I mean, there are stories over and over stories of young people doing extraordinary things under really difficult situations There are stories of a young lady in our program years ago who was coming every single day to her internship, right? But she looked exhausted and she was having a hard time staying awake during some of our workshops and our lesson lesson plans. And when, because wellness is a part of our program and we really kind of asked the question, right? What is going on in your life? It was the fact that she was working three jobs to try to keep the lights on in her home because her, her mother was unemployed and as well as trying to maintain a 3.7 GPA and so forth. You know, that is an example of profound resiliency because not once did she say she couldn't do it. Not once did she say, I give up. Not once did she say, you know, I'm done. She just kept on showing up because she had no other choice. She wanted what she wanted. And she knew this was the way to get where she wanted to go. And that's that. Those is just what a sacred moment, you know, to understand that what she was going. The beauty of it is because we were able to identify it. We were able to intervene and support and provide her with some assistance so she could address it. But part, again, is not 
not trusting to ask for help because you may not necessarily get it and you don't want to be disappointed. The resiliency is just extraordinary and profound amongst the young people we work with. Absolutely. And it's so wonderful to hear you, especially to give that example of this young woman that you're you're sharing. And I'm, I know Nicole and I are so touched by her resiliency and your teams asking her what's going on, as opposed to what most people do. Most people see a student who seems sleepy, seems tired, and they make really, I know faculty and teachers who do this, even though they might have a lot of experience, they just assume that student's not interested. That student just is so checked out. I Or they make assumptions about themselves. I must be so boring. You know, we all make these assumptions in our heads. Am I that boring that she's sleeping? But we often, you know, people will make assumptions that that student is just not interested, is not demonstrating. They're not smart. They're not paying attention, that kind of thing. So rather than make the assumption, I really love that wellness core. One of the elements that's such a core feature to faces is ask and listen, ask what's going on. Are you okay? And listen to the answer and address it. You must also have some real success stories as well. I'm wondering, you know, we love stories that you share. Could you share maybe one particular story that really is a success story that touched your heart and highlights the impact of your work? I would love to. And there there are several stories, but the one I think that hits closest to home is a young lady named Veronica. Veronica was one of our students in our original Oakland program. She came into our program 15 years old, originally from Mexico, grew up in East Oakland, undocumented, and she's okay for, she has shared that uh, with others at that time. She was an excellent student, but she was experienced quite a bit as every young person does in East Oakland, right, growing up. And she just thrived in working in the FACES program and seeing so much, right? The internships, and she just loved being in the clinical settings and so forth. She was unable, as much as she wanted to be a nurse, she was unable to actually go into college because she did not qualify for financial aid and she was not able to afford the tuition. But she told me when she was a student that someday, Dr. Magana, I'm going to work with you. And I said, you know, Vero, I believe that. I believe that. So she graduated from our program. And for a period of time, we lost contact as she was trying to kind of navigate her journey. But the beauty of these early interventions and establishing these relationships for young people is that they know now the value of network. And they now have a community that they can turn to, right, of adults and professionals in healthcare, should the need arise. So several years later, uh, and this was several years ago for me, she reached out to me and she said, Dr. Magana, I'm in an MA program. I would like to have an externship. And do you have any connections? And I said, of course I do, Vero. Do your externship in our clinic. And of course, typical of her, she shined and did such an incredible job that she not only got her certification program, but she ended up getting hired by our department. Long story short, Veronica is now my clinic manager and is now telling me what I need to do and supporting me in my needs. So it's come full circle right back now. In my department at La Clinica de, de la Raza, three of our clinic managers or supervisors in our various school-based health centers have been led by FACES alumni. And then we have many, many, many other of our alumni in medicine, nursing, social services, administration, education, and so forth. So we have over 4,000 young people who've been impacted by FACES programs over the course of the past 
couple of decades. Wow, that was incredible. Oh my gosh, what an amazing story. Just building that family and that those connections, that network. It's just, oh, wow. So inspiring. I love that. As we wrap up the podcast today, what advice do you have for our listeners who want to participate in pipeline programs, either as a volunteer or as a participant? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that question because what we do is a collective impact effort. We can't do this work alone. We depend upon multiple stakeholders, allies, champions, partners to contribute some element, right, of caring for our young people in our community. You know, FACES is really about that notion of it takes a village to raise children. And FACES is really about bringing adults who care enough together to provide some level of support, mentorship, career guidance, right, oversight of young people who have extraordinary skill sets, extraordinary talent and extraordinary passion, but by the nature of who they are and where they live simply can't achieve that without the support of adults coming into their lives, as was illustrative of my own lived narrative. So what I would advise if there are folks out there who would like to participate or want to do pathway, don't necessarily reinvent the wheel, but participate in those programs that are already doing some good work out there. We welcome folks to partner with us in some capacity. And we have program in San Francisco at the public schools there and partner with UCSF or San Francisco General. And we are looking for preceptors and supervisors to support that. So we welcome whatever anybody would like to offer. Oh, I love it. Call to action. <laughs> Anyone to who action. would like to participate, it is. <laughs> you are available. And this is such an amazing program that you've shared with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today. We learned so much and are just so inspired by the work you're doing. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love talking about this. I'm with you all. Thank you so much, Dr. McKenna. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattapadai, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.